Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. And uh, it's good to be with you, even if uh, the road closures mean we have to do something virtually. Uh, hope you can join in in the, the chat online and uh, share some greetings and comments as we go. Uh, let's begin with our scripture reading, which is from Titus 2, verses 11 to 14, reading from the NIV. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage and thank you for your Holy Spirit to illumine us and to guide us and just to help us to appreciate more your grace that has appeared that we celebrate at Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's message is titled, The Wrapping of a Christmas People. First section, Getting Serious About Christmas. As legend has it, Satan and his demons were having a Christmas party. As the demonic guests were departing, one grinned and said to Satan, Merry Christmas, your majesty. At that, Satan replied with a growl, Yes, keep it merry. If they ever get serious about it, we'll all be in trouble. Well, let's get serious about it. It's the birth of the infant savior. It's the coming of God. It's the intervention of God's presence among people. In today's brief scripture reading, the Apostle Paul reminds Titus of the deep significance of that event. It's not just a cute story with some local yokel shepherds gathered around a sweet newborn baby gurgling and cooing in a rustic stable. This is God himself appearing amongst us to save us from eternal peril and change us permanently to live for him, not just basic human desires. And it points ahead to Messiah's return, renewing creation and inaugurating his never-ending reign in which his people enjoy eternal relationship with their maker. Our big idea for today, God's grace showed up at Bethlehem to cleanse and claim our lives and then adorn, do good as we wait for him. Next section, tempted to get off track. Traveling by train is a real treat. No getting stuck in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. No having to keep your hands gripped on the steering wheel and adjusting your speed depending on the traffic around you or vehicles cutting in on you. You can just sit back, relax, and listen to the clickety-clack of the wheels on the rails as the engineer does the driving and conveys you safely to your destination. As long, that is, as the switches are set right. If the switch is set the wrong way, you might end up in Kitchener rather than London or Montreal rather than Ottawa you'd have gotten seriously off track. Crete is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, about 160 miles long and on average about 20 miles wide. It's at the south end of the Aegean Sea, which separates Greece from modern day Turkey. Paul had brought in the gospel there, but left a young assistant named Titus behind to appoint leaders in the young churches and put in order what was yet to be done. Honestly, there was quite a bit of putting in order needed. Deceivers with selfish motives had made inroads and were pocketing ill-gotten proceeds. Titus 1.10 says, For there are many rebellious 
people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to do. And that saves gain. The lax behavior of the general population on the island was summed up in a proverb, Titus 1.12, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. How's that for a reputation? We won't compare that with our own having a bit too much to eat and then curling up on the couch with the remote in the tube. Truth be told, we have all been off track in our behavior at some time in our life. As Paul describes in 3.3, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Hmm, we too. Sin has beguiled us all at some time or other. None of us has a perfect record, not even the apostles. We have rebelled against God's commands. We have dabbled in forbidden fruit and consequently found ourselves trapped, enslaved by the results, the passions that proved too strong for us to control. What kind of society results when good is rejected? Paul suggests malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Everyone for themselves. Grab what you can while you can. A sad news story this past week involved a group of teenage girls, 16 and younger, from across Toronto, gathering and even attacking a 59-year-old man who later died from the injuries. What happened to Toronto the good? Is this where our society is headed? When order breaks down, you have a situation like the capital of Haiti, where gangs determine their turf and decide what's allowed. Darkness creeps in till you're afraid even to go out in public. In such a setting of darkness and disorder, the little faith fellowships called churches are lighthouses of hope, beacons sustaining order and community in the face of threatening anarchy. Next section, the epiphany tucked away. <clears throat> How do you fight darkness? You need a light. All it takes to dispel the darkness is light, even the smallest candle. Paul implies such a light has come. 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The root word for appeared in the Greek is the same from which we get epiphany, as when a light goes on and your surroundings become clear, what was hidden suddenly shows up. Paul is saying the incarnation and ministry and crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus was God's grace becoming apparent or visible in a dark world. Because Jesus came, we know grace. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Also John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Take a whiff of a worldview. If it doesn't smell like grace, it can't be Christianity except no substitutes. God's grace brings salvation, Paul says in 2.11. The angel told Joseph the baby's name would be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. Heroic deeds can save people from drowning, from burning buildings, a kidney transplant can save a young person from endless dialysis and plausible death, but only a perfect sinless sacrifice could save us from the penalty of our sins 
There's only one human that ever lived that could fit that bill. Paul circles back to that epiphany term in 2.13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grammatically, that's not two beings, but both describing the same entity. Paul's declaring Jesus is both Savior and our great God. That little seven or eight pound bundle amidst the straw, wrapped tight in swaddling cloths, is in fact God invading our existence incognito. Luke doesn't actually describe the shepherds as worshiping before the manger, but Matthew says about the wise men are magi in Matthew 2.11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Hmm. Worship is only appropriate for a divine being. The magi were non-Jews and astrologers at that. So they're a good illustration of what Paul says in Titus 2.11. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, even the Gentiles, even astrologers. God could command the stars and planets to communicate his appearing even to foreign pagans. Yes, and your next door neighbor today is looking at their horoscope and putting their hope in lottery tickets. Our big idea. God's grace showed up at Bethlehem to cleanse and claim our lives and then adorn, do good as we wait for him. Next section, the gift that takes away. Paul continues to say of Jesus in 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The best gift at Christmas is Jesus. He gave himself for us. It's an incredibly long way from the throne room of heaven to that dusty, smelly stable behind the no room inn. Jesus left behind his eternal glory and unbroken fellowship with the Father and Holy Spirit to become limited in many aspects, constrained by our human form, susceptible to becoming weak and tired and hungry, struck and despised and spat upon. Excuse <coughs> me. Writing to the Philippians, Paul described it as kenosis or emptying, Philippians 2, 6-8, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. In verse 14, Paul breaks Jesus' saving work into two aspects, cleansing and claiming. Here it is, verse 14. See if you can find those two, cleansing and claiming. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Redeem from wickedness, that's the cleansing. Purify for himself, that's the claiming. To redeem is to buy back. The Greek terms point to a ransom, an amount of money paid to free a slave. We see a similar idea in Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Also 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Jesus paid the price to set you free. No matter how badly you've messed up, no matter how great your guilt, 
your iniquity was laid on him. By trusting in Jesus and receiving him as your savior, you are delivered or rescued in a judicial legal sense. The penalty has been paid, but he doesn't stop there. He works an internal transformation in you by the Holy Spirit to change you and your behavior from the inside out, what's formally called regeneration and sanctification. He has cleansed you, now he claims you. See the part of 14 after the end, it says, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. He purifies us. If something's pure, it doesn't have other stuff mixed in. There's a singularity, only or exclusively one element. We have a reverse osmosis unit that sends water to our kitchen sink that's relatively pure. But if I go to make a cup of coffee, I heat the water, then run it through the coffee grounds in the French press, pour it over a half a teaspoon of honey, and add a teaspoon of cream. It's certainly not pure water when I'm done with it. When Jesus purifies us, he gives us a single focus. We're exclusively his, sold out to our Savior, not torn in multiple directions. It's a catharsis for a purpose. Paul says, purify for himself, a people his very own. We belong to him. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Called out ones, ecclesia or church, called out to be exclusively his, declaring his goodness and awesomeness. To illustrate this claiming aspect, consider a padlock. In high school, we used a padlock for our very own locker. If anybody else wanted into it, they'd have to use bolt cutters. That was my locker and no one else had access to it or could use it. Does Jesus have that much claim on us? Are you his, purified for him? That helps us keep unadulterated from wrong influences in our everyday living. Paul says of God's grace that brings salvation in verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Just say no to godless living and sinful pleasures. Remember the coffee, don't let those things get you into hot water. We mentioned at the start how off track Cretan culture could be. Reputation was liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Or the circumcision group coercing people to adopt all the mosaic laws and dietary regulations. The rebellious people in 110 full of meaningless talk and deception disrupting households. In 3.9 Paul says, but avoid Foolish, argument, foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Don't get sidetracked from God's grace. If you read the whole of this short letter to Titus, you'll see self-control is a big theme. One verse eight, an elder must be self-controlled. Two verses two, five and six, teach the older men to be self-controlled. Younger women are to be self-controlled and pure. Encourage the younger young men to be, you guessed it, self-controlled. You American Standard Version translates sensibly. A lexicon has 
with sound mind, soberly, temperately, discreetly. Don't let your appetites run away with you. If you pause to think about it, Paul's short phrase at the end of verse 12 describes succinctly how we are to behave in three different spheres. New International Bible Commentary Revised notes, Positively, we must seek to live rightly in relation to ourselves, to others, and to God, i.e. sober, upright, and godly lives. In right relation to ourselves, to others, and to God. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Time for a big idea again as we're working our way through. God's grace showed up at Bethlehem to cleanse and claim our lives and then adorn, do good, as we wait for him. Next section. Doing good makes him look good. The verse just preceding our passage today caught my attention. In 2.10, Paul says the trustworthy behavior of slaves toward their masters in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Hmm. The word translated means to adorn, to ornament, uh, to embellish with honor. Literally, it's cosmeto, you know, think cosmetics, same root. Is anyone here wearing cosmetics to embellish your appearance? A bit of touch-up cream covers up that zit or scratch and helps your appearance. By our behavior, we adorn our Savior. We make him attractive to others. Doing good makes him look good. What's the popular beef by others about churchgoers? Ah, the church is full of hypocrites. Usually said by someone who has been treated in an unchrist-like way by some churchgoer. How many of you have a bare, undecorated Christmas tree in your house? Hmm, would look pretty blah, wouldn't it? I mean, trees are fine and green and make oxygen and we need them to live, but who would put just this huge green blob in your living room that takes up space and drops needles everywhere? No, we decorate our tree. We add ornaments, pretty bows and garland. Delicate, shiny glass balls colored silver or gold that break and smash into a thousand bits on the floor if you drop them. Why such trouble? Because they help the tree look absolutely beautiful. By doing good, you put an ornament on the tree that is Jesus' reputation amongst others, as it were. You trim the tree to honor him by good deeds. Hmm, is there any behavior you should consider trimming out of your habits that doesn't honor him, doesn't make him look good to onlookers. The Apostle Paul really hammers away on this all through this short letter. 1 verse 8, an overseer must be one who loves what is good. One sixteen about those who are corrupt. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. 2 verse 3, the older women are to teach what is good. 2 verse 7, Paul tells Titus regarding young men, in everything set them an example by doing what is good. 3 verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. 3 8, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to 
doing what is good. And 314, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Are you sensing a theme here? I guess if Christians are criticized for being do-gooders, we come by it on good authority. A corrective question would be, are we doing our good deeds to be seen by other people? Or are we just intent on making Jesus look good rather than trying to boost our own reputation? Are we keeping up appearances, drawing attention to ourselves? Or are we doing good even secretly, quietly, not caring about getting credit so long as Jesus' honor is embellished? Well, Pastor, that all sounds very fine, being self-controlled, doing what's good, but it gets tiring real fast. How can I keep it up? You can't, not in your own strength. You need God's help, otherwise you get depleted very fast. There's a clue in verses 11 to 13 about how it's possible. It says, the grace of God teaches us to say no and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That hope motivates us. His cleansing and claiming of us prompt us to be eager to do what is good, verse 14. Our doing good is not an attempt to earn God's favor, but a response to his grace and love poured into our lives. He is involved in setting up the opportunities for us to do good. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's rehearse our big idea one more time as we close. God's grace showed up at Bethlehem to cleanse and claim our lives and then adorn, do good as we wait for him. Let's pray. Jesus, Savior, how awesome it is that you came all the way from the Father's side to a crude barn, to be born among peasants, to never own a car, never marry, never have kids, but just to teach us your way and to give yourself on a cross so we could have our sins forgiven and be yours forever. Holy Spirit, pour out your love in our hearts. Strengthen our determination to do good. Grow in us a sense that we are indeed your people, your very own, dear to you and set apart for your purposes. Help us live in a way that attracts others to you. And thank you for the blessed hope only you can give. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord be with you the rest of the day, and again may the gifts of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love be yours this Christmas time.